welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. All right. Well, tonight we're going to continue our series in the book of Proverbs. And when I was prepping for this message, I, uh, I remembered something that happened to me recently. I was in Des Moines, Iowa. Anyone from Iowa in here? No Iowans. Okay. Well, you're not missing out. Iowa's pretty normal. Um, but I was there for a ministry conference. And so it was a college ministry conference. And I was going for two reasons. Uh, the first one was that one of my best friends, he's a, he's a guy named Josiah Sabino, was at this conference, and he's my cousin, and he serves on staff with this ministry. And so I was going to see him selfishly, but I was also going to see kind of what methods were working um, for this ministry. They were college ministry, and they had grown from this tiny little organization to a network that was across the entire country. It's called the Salt Company uh, ministry, essentially. And what it is, is it's a college campus ministry, a lot like um, others you might have heard of, but they plant uh, not only the college ministry, but they go with the church. And so I go to this conference in Des Moines, and there are over 8,000 college students from across the country who are joining me. And there was, if you can imagine it, this massive indoor warehouse. That's where the conference was, and there was an amphitheater right in the middle and stadium seating that surrounded the whole thing. And so most of our time there was spent worshiping and hearing preaching from the word. And it was actually, it was really, it was good in some ways, but it was also pretty tough in others. But I remember specifically the first night after the session, I had to go to the restroom. And I, the restroom was like, as it would be, on the complete opposite side of the conference. And so session gets done, everyone's trying to go home, and I'm just bobbing and weaving my way through the traffic. I'm trying to part the Red Sea. I got to go to the restroom. I'm on a mission when all of a sudden I felt a hand on my shoulder and somebody just said, bro. And this wasn't like a light hand on the shoulder. This was like a firm grip. And I just hear, bro. And I'm like, I'm in the zone. I'm on my mission. I got to go to the bathroom. And so I'm like, I'm not from Des Moines. There's no way I know who this person is. They've probably mistaken me for a friend. I kindly go to blow them off. Like, you know, in love. But when I turn around, the craziest thing happened. It was actually one of my best friends from high school. I hadn't seen him in two years. His name's Andrew Crawford. And he probably thought I was dumb because I stood there with my mouth just open like deer in the headlights for like five seconds. And the reason was we hadn't seen each other in two years. It'd been a long time. And if you've ever like run into someone you know but didn't expect to see in public, you kind of understand what I'm talking about. Your brain kind of has to like restart because it doesn't know what's happening. So I got through that initial shock, and after that, I just gave him the biggest hug. I was like, dude, what? It's so good to see you. What are you doing here? And immediately, we're catching up. And it was like a day hadn't gone by. And for me, it was just such a blessing to see him again, because he's one of those friends where it doesn't matter how long you've been apart or where you've ended up, you're always going to be close. A true and godly friend is a gift from the Lord. 
And Proverbs 27, 9 says, Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the soul is sweetened by the good counsels of a friend. I always like that. Good friends sweeten the soul. They're like a batch of warm cookies when they come out of the oven, right? They just make life better. And God has created you. He's created all of us for friendship. And some of you might say, well, I'm an introvert. I don't actually like people. That is not true. God has created all of us, extroverts and introverts, for friendship. And he's given us this desire to be around people who bring us joy and help us to grow. I mean, why do you think everybody loves Frodo and Samwise? Or Maverick and Goose? Or Sean Spencer and Bert and Guster, right? It's because we all are, we, we want those kinds of friendships. And that's how God has created us. And so that's my title for tonight's message is Created for Friendship. Created for Friendship. God's made us with that desire. But there is a problem. And the problem is not all of us have it. As I was studying for this sermon, I found a survey that had been sent out by an organization to over a million high school students from 2012 to 2018. And on this survey, they asked the question, are you lonely? And in 2012, only 18% of kids said yes. That's not bad. But by 2018, that number had increased to 37%. And that was pre-pandemic. Four years later now, the estimate is that over 50% of students would say that they're lonely. That they lack those life-giving friendships that we long for. And... What this means is that half of the students in the country, half of the students here tonight feel isolated. They feel like nobody genuinely cares for them. They feel like whenever they reach out to people around them, they're not heard or seen. They feel like the friends they have are casual at best, no true best friends. They feel burnt out in social situations and they struggle with feelings of self-doubt or self-worth. Those are hard things. And if that's you, if you're struggling with that right now, or maybe you have struggled with it in the past, I just want to take this moment to encourage you. God loves you. I hope you know that. God loves you with a perfect and intimate love that is beyond anything you can imagine. He's the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies. And that means in Christ, the natural inclination of God's heart towards you is one of love. When He thinks of you, it's love. And this is where the world gets it wrong because in that survey, their conclusion at the end of it, when they saw how many kids were lonely, they thought to themselves, well, the issue is technology and social media. They said, that's it. The reason why everybody's lonely is because they have phones and they're all on Instagram. And that's certainly part of the issue, I would say. It's part of the truth, but it's not the whole picture. The main issue is something quite different, I would say. Because we could go back to a time before iPhones existed, and you'd still find lonely people, wouldn't you? Only Jesus can fix our friendship problem. In Christ, we are enabled to enjoy true friendship. And the world's understanding of friendship is wrong. It's self-centered. It's all about what you get out of it. That's not going to help you. So we need to be careful that we don't neglect our relationship with Jesus in the pursuit of friends. 
Don't think that the friend groups at your school or the people in life are somehow going to meet that need that you feel in your heart. They're not. It doesn't matter how great they are. No one can satisfy that except Christ. And you won't be able to have healthy relationships. This is a, a helpful way to think about it. Your, your friendships on this earth are horizontal relationships, right? They're the people around you. But those will never be healthy until you have a healthy vertical relationship with the Lord. And often we kind of mix those two up. We start with the horizontal and then we think we'll get to the vertical. No, you've got to start with Christ if you're going to have a friend. All right, that one was for free. Now we're going to get into the sermon. I just wanted to start there before we dived in. If you have your Bibles, you can open to the book of Proverbs. I've also given you a handout that'll have all the verses I'm going to go through if you don't want to have to flip all over the place. And the question we're asking tonight is, does God care about our friendships? Does he care about who we choose to be friends with? Does he care about how we talk with our friends, how we joke with them, how we make fun of them, how we laugh together? Does he, does he care about those little details in our lives? And the answer, the short answer is yes, he does care. And he has a lot to say about it in the book of Proverbs. And it's probably enough for its own sermon series. But tonight, I'm going to try and like, consolidate that all into 30 minutes. And so there are five points I want to highlight tonight about biblical friendship. And the first one is this. It's a command. Don't fear man. Don't fear man. For a second, I want to see if you guys can all just come with me. Join my, my brain. And imagine that you're in a car and you're driving. Now for you middle schoolers, I know you don't drive yet. Just imagine, it's really nice. You get a lot of freedom. But imagine you're in your car and you're driving around and you decide to cue up your favorite song on Spotify. Maybe for some of you that's Justin Bieber. Some of you that might be Ben Rector. The holy ones in the room that might be like Shane and Shane. For me, it would be Morgan Wallen. I would turn on some Morgan Wallen. So imagine you're with me and you cue up that favorite song and it hits. You bump the volume a little bit. You start to drive a little bit faster. You set aside everything you do at that moment other than driving and you start to sing. And you're singing this song word for word. It doesn't matter. You don't need lyrics. This thing's a piece of your heart. And all you can think is, I love this song, right? And you feel free. You feel, you feel more alive than you've ever felt but you lose it in an instant. Because what happens? No, you don't get in a car crash. <laughs> you hopefully, hopefully you don't get in a car crash. That would be bad. No, what actually happens in this scenario is you look over to your left and driving right next to you is some rando you don't know and they're just staring at you <laughs> as you sing, right? And at that moment, you turn, you turn the volume way down you sit back in your seat and you try and take the first right you can. You do not want to see that person again. It's, even though you're never going to see him again, you feel embarrassed and you feel exposed. And it's silly, but we're afraid of what other people think of us. And you might know that as peer pressure or people pleasing or even codependency, but it's what the Bible calls the fear of man. And the fear of man is when we replace a biblical fear of God with a fear of the people around us. And rather than looking to the Lord for our hope, for our happiness, our security, our significance, we start to look for those things in the people around us. It's idolatry. It's worshiping the creation rather than the creator. 
and it will choke out your life. And it's funny, I, when I was thinking about this, I, I actually just recently met this guy named Dan. None of you know him because he's not from Rockford, but he, he traps beavers for a living. Isn't that interesting? He traps beavers. And so Dan and I were fishing together, and he got to talking, and he told me about the, the best trap that he used, and he called it the Connie Bear Trap. It's a trap that uses spring-loaded metal jaws that clamp down when a beaver swims into it. And I was asking him, I was like, why do you use that one? There's a bunch of traps. And he said, well, it's the most effective at staying hidden. And when we use a Connie Bear Trap, we put it in the place where the beavers are the most comfortable, a place where they swim all the time. And so when they swim into their deaths, they're completely oblivious. That's pretty gnarly. But it's a good picture of the fear of man. It's a good picture of sin. In Proverbs 29, 25, it says that the fear of man lays a snare. It lays a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And so the fear of man, it is a trap. It's hidden from our sight. It's something we don't realize that we're struggling with. And yet we swim right into its jaws. People start to control us. We begin to fear them. And we start to cave to their influence on our lives. And as a result, all of our friendships suffer. Because that's what the fear man does. It kills any potential for friendship. So keep your eyes open. Be cautious of this trap. Be cautious of the fear man. And here's some ways you can do that. Ask yourself these questions. Do I struggle with peer pressure or with the influence of other people in my life? Am I always caving? Am I always overcommitted, saying yes to everything? Do I struggle with self-esteem? Am I always second-guessing my decisions because of what other people might think? And do I tell little white lies to make myself look better or to cover up a mistake? Those are some symptoms of a heart that fears man. And it's something you have to turn away from. You have to repent when you are fearing man. And it's not because you're going to be a bad friend. It's not because it might make you insecure. The reason you have to repent, the reason you have to turn away from the fear of man is because if you, you live in that, you'll have a wrong view of God. And you won't worship him the way he's created you to. And your life will suffer because of it. Escape the trap laid by the fear of man. Proverbs 14, 27 has the answer to our issue. It says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. It's the same word. If you want to flee from the fear of man, run to the fear of the Lord. That's the greatest treatment. Don't try to make people around you smaller. Don't think if you just make yourself better, you'll feel, you're, you're going to fear those people less. You won't. Focus on God. Because fearing the Lord means that you submit to God with reverence. You obey His commandments. You fall in love with Him. You chase after Him in His Word. And in prayer, you ask Him to show you more of His glory. That's the only way you're going to be freed from the fear of man and able to have life-giving friendships. It'll be His work in you as He reminds you constantly of His greatness. Every day to start that way. Lord, help me not to fear man. Help me not to fear my friends at school. Help me not to fear my parents or anyone in my life who would influence me and take me away from you. God, help me to have a better view of who you are. That should be each of our prayers in the morning. That's something we all struggle with. A great resource on this issue is a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. I actually brought it with me. It's written by a guy named Edward T. Welch. 
And if you struggle with the fear of man, this is a resource I would recommend to you. It's worth the read. Don't fear man, fear the Lord. That brings me to my second point. Go deeper. So here at the church, I have the privilege of serving as the children's minister. I oversee the kids' ministry. I'm the kids' pastor. And one of my favorite things about kids' ministry is the worship. Kids' worship is honestly one of the most amazing things in the world. And as a kid, I grew up singing a lot of kids' worship songs. One of them you may know. It's called Deep and Wide. Anyone familiar with this song? Right? Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Oh, second verse. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. There you go. Yeah. I loved hearing that song as a kid. It always stuck with me. And it's a beautiful picture of the fountain of Christ. That's what it's talking about. It's saying Christ is deep and wide. And he brings life to all of us. But the truth is, it doesn't quite work when we talk about friendship. You can't go deep and wide. Going a mile wide means you can only go an inch deep. We've all heard that. And Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And in the context of Proverbs 18, what this verse is talking about is it's a specific situation where there's uh, really two poor men. And in both of their lives, crisis hits. And as everything's falling apart, they're looking for help. And it says that the one with a lot of friends, who has many people involved in his life, he won't find it. Those people, they're going to snowflake. They're going to run away from him. They won't help him because they're not close to him. The other man who has one true friend finds help. And so it's far better to have that one true friend than a bunch of superficial ones. Having a lot of friends is like a balancing act that gets continuously more and more complicated. You throw in more things you have to juggle. And rather than having a few close friends to give your time and attention to, you maintain as many friendships as possible. And for some of you guys, this is your full-time job. You have to text everyone back. You wake up, open Snapchat, all the streaks, got to maintain them. And you spend all this time pouring into people you don't even know. You never get close to them. You're wasting your energy. Because the only thing you have to show for it is shallow friendships. And if you think that's harsh, look at the life of Jesus. In his three years of ministry, he met over a thousand people. Thousands of people he ministered to. And he was loving, he was kind towards each of them. But he only intentionally invested time in 12 men, his disciples. And even within that, he had three close friends, Peter, James, and John. In my own life, I've committed to following Christ's example. If you know me, you know that I'm very extroverted. I love people. I love getting to talk to others. And a lot of you guys are like me. But even then, I have intentionally chosen the people in my life that I give the most to and that I go deep with. Because I can't do it with everyone. One of those people is Andrew. He's the one I brought up in the, the sermon earlier. And two you might know would be Gabe Whitaker and Ben Peterson. Those are men I've chosen to walk side by side with in life. To go deeper with. And that doesn't mean I value other people less. Jesus didn't value everyone that wasn't a part of his 12 disciples less 
Proverbs shows that it's wisdom. It's wisdom to intentionally limit the people that you pour into in your life so that you can go deeper with them. So as a student, consider the friends that you have. Are you spread too thin? Make an intentional effort to select the individuals that you want to pour into and go deeper with them. That brings me to my third point. Beware the worldly friend. Beware the worldly friend. One of my favorite stories is Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't had the opportunity to read that, it's an amazing book. And in Pilgrim's Progress, the main character is a guy named Christian. And he kind of represents believers for all time. And Christian is on a journey. He's going from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And it's kind of an analogy for the life of the believers. They go from death to life with Christ. And throughout his journey, Christian is joined by two types of companions. Good companions and bad companions. And throughout his journey, for the most part, Christian finds bad company. You have guys like pliable and obstinate, worldly wise men, simple, sloth, and then a bunch of other guys after that. And what you see in the book is that each of these bad companions seek to lead Christian away from the path to the celestial city. And that's what a worldly friend does. They pull you away from God. So be careful with who you surround yourself with and who you listen to because it will impact your path, whether you realize it or not. And I think something important for you guys and the students to realize is it's not just the people you hang out with. It is the people you listen to. On social media, on YouTube, anything like that, the people you listen to will impact you. And they will either pull you closer to Christ or they will pull you away. And so there are four aspects of a worldly friend that I want to highlight for you guys. Things to be aware of and on guard of. First one is this. A worldly friend is a liar and a gossip. You should see it on the page. Proverbs 16, 28. It says, A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. It's kind of an interesting imagery. It's, it says they're a whisperer. I thought that'd be kind of weird. Like if you were going to talk bad about someone, you go up to your friend and you start to whisper in their ear. That'd be kind of strange, wouldn't it? I'd be like, dude, get off me. Don't talk to me. <laughs> but that's really the idea. They whisper. It's private. They want to sow distrust among you and your friends. That's what a worldly friend would do. They, 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 they take a false view of the truth. They're passive-aggressive. They're sarcastic, cynical. And if you find yourself always talking with people like this, guard your heart and guard your tongue. A second aspect of a worldly friend is that they're unfaithful and they're selfish. We saw this in Proverbs 18, 24, where a man of many companions comes to ruin. And again, you see it in Proverbs 19, 4, which says, a, man, a poor man is deserted by his friend. Right? These are people who are snowflakes. They're not going to stick it out with you when the going gets tough. They're going to jump ship as soon as they can. And they love to be your friend until it's no longer beneficial for them. They're really in it for themselves. Be careful with those kinds of people. The third aspect of a worldly friend is that they leave their emotions unchecked. They leave their emotions unchecked. I'm moving right down the list. Proverbs 22:24 says, "Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor a wrathful man, 
lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. This last weekend, I had the chance to go to Monaco. I was already telling you guys about this, and it was for Kyle Darge's bachelor party. Congrats. And uh, yeah, congrats. You guys can give that a round of applause. Now, one of the things I got to do while I was at this, this party is that I went kayaking. And I was kind of going with a couple of the other guys, and we were going, we were hopping from island to island. And I absolutely loved it. If you go to Monaco, it's like the most beautiful place I've ever been. And kayaking is really fun. But I'll tell you what, the flies out there are insane. They will bite you. And you don't even mess with them, but they will come for you, right, and draw blood. And that's what an angry friend is like. They're like a horsefly. Because they're not safe to be around. And they'll bite you unprovoked. Their emotion is unchecked. And their anger, it says, ensnares them. Just like the fear of man. And Proverbs says it is wisdom. It is wise to not be a friend. To not be around such a person. So be careful with them. That brings us to the last quality. A worldly friend is undisciplined. Proverbs 28, 7. A companion of gluttons shames his father. And in the Hebrew, to be a glutton, it means that you're thoughtless. It means that you're, you're rash. And it really means that you're a squanderer. And it, it's this idea that you waste everything that God has given to you. In particular, your body. And in Deuteronomy 21, it has some harsh words for the glutton. In fact, Israelites were commanded by God. If their children were gluttons and they disciplined them and the child wouldn't respond well, they were to take that child and stone them to death outside of the city. I'm very thankful we do not live in the Old Testament times. <laughs> that's intense. But that's the kind of language that the Bible uses about the glutton because they're undisciplined. And if you're undisciplined in one area of your life, it applies to all the others. Don't... Put yourself around someone who is undisciplined. Don't associate with them. It says that it will only bring you shame. So those are the four qualities. Rather than help you grow worldly friends, again, they're going to lead you astray. They're going to lead you off the path to the celestial city. They're going to lead you away from God. So don't form relationships with them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be yoked. Don't be joined. Don't be unified together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is none. The light of Christ cannot be mingled with the darkness of this world. So does that mean we shun unbelievers? We climb in our ivory tower and we just let them be? If you have a friend who's unsaved, you're like, nope can't be with you anymore. No. That's not what I'm saying. In Matthew 5:16 it says, "Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father." So rather than avoid unbelievers, we're all called to serve them so that they can see God in us and be drawn to him. That's the example we see in Christ. He surrounded himself with people who were sinners that needed saving. Luke 7.34, it says he was the friend of tax collectors and of sinners. His entire ministry was spent with the lost. And many people have been saved because a believer has been kind to them or prayed for them or served them. So what I'm not saying is to turn your back on an unbeliever. Instead, I'm telling you to be careful. 
I'm giving you a warning. Because any kind of intimate relationship with an unbeliever can easily become something that will hold you back from your walk with Christ. God calls you to evangelize the lost, not to be intimate with them. And so there's nothing wrong necessarily with building a quality friendship with an unbeliever. And I know that a lot of you here, a lot of you are going to have friends that are unsaved. That's not sinful. That's not wrong. You just have to remember that the primary focus of that friendship should be to share the gospel with them and to point them towards Christ with everything you say and do. And if that's not the case, then you need to run away from that friendship because it will only pull you off the path. Don't be led astray by bad company. That brings me to my fourth point. If the third was to beware bad company, the fourth is to treasure the godly friend. Just as Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, he had a lot of bad friends who led him astray. There were some who helped him. Right? There's the evangelist. There's help. There's faithful and hope. And each of these men pointed him to the celestial city. That was the difference. A godly friend points you to Christ. And so I have four qualities to highlight in the godly friend. Things to look for. The first one is that a godly friend is selfless. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. This is somebody who embodies Philippians 2, 3. They count everyone around them as more significant than themselves. And if you've ever met someone like this, you know it just breathes like fresh life into you. It puts wind in your sails when someone cares more about you than they do themselves. I think a great illustration is Jonathan and David, their friendship, right? Jonathan didn't get a whole lot from his friendship from David. It wasn't like beneficial to him politically. In fact, he lost his position as king. He lost his relationship with his family. He lost almost everything. And it was purely because he loved David. That's the kind of friendship that the world is lacking. A selfless love. And so a godly friend is selfless. Look for that in the people around you. The second quality is that a godly friend is honest. Proverbs 27.6. You should all know this one. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A godly friend speaks the truth to you even when it's hard. And in my own life, I've had (laughs) several good friends speak hard truths to me. And I've tried to take them humbly and be corrected. But the harder parts of life for me have been when I have been the one that God's called to speak truth into someone else. The hardest moment where I've ever had to do that was with my roommate in college. I went to Moody Bible Institute, and this guy, he was my best friend. And I remember a time where he decided to leave Moody and go be a pastor, a youth pastor, at his home church. And over the next several months, as he was in ministry, and he and I stayed in contact, he fell into habitual sin. And all of our friend group didn't want to talk to him about it. And in fact, some of them actually encouraged it. But the Lord started to convict my heart that I needed to say something. And so I remember after getting counsel, after crying and wrestling with this for for weeks, I decided to give him a call. And it was the hardest phone call I've ever had to make. Because he picked up and I, I told him, I said, I love you. But you need to know that you're walking in sin to such a degree that I think you're unfit for ministry and I believe that you've disqualified yourself from being a pastor. You need to repent. 
and I remember it was quiet for a little bit on the phone. And uh, after a bit, he told me, he said, thank you for telling me this, but you've hurt me. And you give me a lot to think about. We'll be in touch. And he hung up the phone. And just like that, our friendship was broken. And there are going to be times in your life where it's easy to affirm. It's easy to offer cheap encouragement. But God is going to call you to wound a friend, to be faithful. Look for the friend who's willing to do that, to speak truth into your life. And if they do, take the correction humbly because it's hard. It is hard to speak truth. I remember six months passed before I heard from my roommate again. Six months. I had no idea if he had changed his life or what was going on. But he called me and the Lord had broken him. And he thanked me. He said, you were the only person who was willing to tell me that I was walking in sin. And I just wept because I didn't think that was ever going to happen. And to the day, he's one of my closest friends. And he's in ministry and he's thriving. And the Lord is doing awesome things in his life. And I'm so thankful for that. But the truth is, you may have to, to wound a friend and that might not be the outcome. You might never see them repent. They might never come circle back and say thank you. But still, that's what the Lord calls us to. A godly friend is honest. The third quality, a godly friend is forgiving and discerning. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. This is an interesting verse. When I was reading it, I actually uh, misunderstood it. I had to study it a little bit more to find the, the actual meaning. When I first read it, what I thought it meant was that there is a person who has forgiven someone else. And the person who forgives is the loving one. But if the person who messed up the first time messes up a second time, then they'll separate, right? He who repeats a matter separates friends. That's actually not what it means. When it says he who repeats a matter, it's referring to the one who is covering the offense, not to the one who's offending. And so really what this verse is telling us is that if you forgive someone, they wrong you and in your heart you, you decide to forgive them, but then you go and tell other people what happened, you will be responsible when that friendship breaks off. A godly friend not only forgives, but he goes beyond that. And he protects the offender from shame. That's interesting to me. And it's a picture of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Treasure that friend who is forgiving and endures all things. All right, that brings me to the last quality. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And so a godly friend is sharpening, right? It's the idea of being refined in a fire. It's like a forge where just they're hammering you. They push you to grow. And in my life, there is one man who represents that to me more than anyone else. Some of you have met him. His name's Ryan Hughes. And I met this guy also at college, and he was an RA with me. And that meant we both oversaw different dorm floors, about 30 college guys. And you need to know one thing about Ryan Hughes. He is like the most beastly and manly man I have ever met. But he stands like yay high. <laughs> so he's, I hope he never hears this message. He's going to kill me. He's just this brick, right? And he graduated at the same time I did with a degree in biblical studies. But just last week, he enlisted in the Army Special Forces. So this dude is legit. And don't ask me how that works. I don't know how you go towards ministry degree, but now I'm going into the army. But 
For me, this man is a brother in arms. And we met, when we met each other, there was a turning point in our friendship. I'll always remember this because we were sitting together late at night and we were just complaining. We were complaining about all the people at Moody who were saying, oh, no one here is disciplined. Nobody here is getting after it. And I remember Ryan looked at me and he said, well, are you going to do something about it? He like called me on it and it was, it was very convicting. But he told me, he said, you can't complain about something if you're not going to work towards it. And so that night we made a pact. We made a pact together as brothers and we said that we were going to strive after excellence for the glory of God in every aspect of our lives and that we would hold each other accountable to it. I remember that. We held arms and just locked eyes and we said, together we will pursue excellence physically, spiritually, financially, emotionally, mentally. And we just went down the whole list. He said, in every aspect of our lives, we're going to be excellent. And that man held his word because he would text me every morning. He still does this. He texts me in all caps and he says, are you getting after it? Did you read the word? Are you pushing yourself? He's like David Goggins. I don't know even if you guys know who that is, but he's just always pushing me to grow. That's the kind of friend you want. You want someone who won't let you off the hook, but's going to push you to make you better. That's what it means when iron sharpening iron. Look for a godly friend who refines you. Those are just a couple of the qualities. But overall, a godly friend helps you on the journey of faith. They're a gift from God and a blessing in our lives. Right? They're selfless, honest, forgiving, and refining. They're people you should pursue in friendship. If you're trying to figure out who should I go deep with, that's the kind of person. And friendship, what you realize when you, you take that view of it is that it's really not about the output. It's not what you get out of it. It's about what you give. Perry told me that. He said, Alex, friendship isn't about the output. It's about the input. I thought that was good. We need to be people who are giving to other people. And for some of you, your lives look more like the worldly friend than the godly friend. I'm here preaching and you're thinking, well, I don't line up that well. The truth is, none of us do, right? JT talked about this earlier. We're all the fool. We're all the worldly friend. And that's why we need a better friend. Because you're a sinner in need of rescue. And that can be only found in one man. There's only one friend who can meet the need. So that brings me to my last point. Trust the friend of sinners. Trust the friend of sinners. There's a, as I was thinking about friendship, really what I realized is that the value, the value of a friend is found in the degree to which they show you Christ, right? It's not in how much you have fun with them. It's not in how much they benefit you. It's really in how much they point you towards Jesus. And there's one friend who I think shows us a lot about Jesus. And he's a hobbit named Samwise Gamgee. You know, my guys always like to make fun of me because I love Lord of the Rings, but it really has a lot to teach us about the word. And if you, don't, if you aren't familiar with Lord of the Rings, there's this character named Samwise Gamgee, and he's the gardener for the main character, whose name is Frodo Baggins. And Frodo has to take the one ring. And the one ring is all, it represents all evil in the world. And Frodo is tasked to take it to Mount Doom, cast it into the fire, and destroy it forever. And so Frodo kind of gets all the attention, but we all know Sam is the real one, right? He is the friend. Because the entire way there, he sticks by Frodo's side. He encourages him and he helps him. He protects him. He does everything he can for Frodo. 
It sounds a lot like the godly friend. But near the end of their journey comes one of the most precious moments you'll ever find. And what happens is that Frodo and Sam have made it to the slopes of Mount Doom. They're right there. They're at the end. But the, the weight of the ring is so heavy that Frodo can't even move. He's laying in the dirt. He's crushed by the weight of it. And Sam comes up to him and he comforts him. He says, Mr. Frodo. He holds him in his arms. Mr. Frodo, do you remember the Shire? Do you remember the taste of strawberries? And he just starts to remind him of all of these things that are good in his life. And Frodo, you can tell he's just wiped. He says, no, Sam. He says, I can't remember any of that. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. He's giving up. My favorite line that Sam ever says, he, he looks at Mr. Frodo and he says, well, then come on, Mr. Frodo. He says, I can't carry it for you. I can't carry your burden. He says, but I can carry you. And he picks Frodo up, throws him on his back, and he takes him up the mountain. Isn't that a picture of Christ? Jesus comes to us, and he picks us up, and he takes us up the mountain. He doesn't leave you in your weakness. No, he comes to you and he says, I see the ugly. I see the broken. I see that you're weighed down, but I'm taking you all the way. Praise God. Jesus takes us up the mountain. He's the only one that could. Because we could never do it in our own strength. That's the picture. You can't, you can't get up the mountain. You can't get through this life in your own strength. And your friends can't do it either. They're not going to be able to help you that way. They can't meet the need. They're not sufficient. Only Christ is. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means you place your faith in Him. You repent of your sins. You trust Him with your life and you watch as He carries you up the mountain. And in the end, it's all His work. And the glory goes only to Him. It's a beautiful picture. Trust the friend of sinners. On with this. In John 15, 12, Jesus says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And the greatest love is a sacrificial love to the very point of death. And if you were to go back to John chapter 10, Jesus speaks again and he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And here it is. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is the greatest friend because he's the friend who laid down his life for you. And his life is of infinite value. And yet he gave it up for you. And that is freely offered to every single one of us here tonight. Jesus is the example and he is the motivation for our friendship. Let's pray.